Hey there, skips and skipperettes from all across the vast electronic wasteland known only as Internet Land, and welcome back to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. First of all, sorry about the audio quality of this intro. We are in the process of moving into a new jungle headquarters as we speak, and we're missing our microphones. And the internet. And the coffee machine isn't up and running yet, so basically... We're just barely functional right now, but still, we wanted to make sure we stayed on the production schedule, uh, bringing you the best and biggest of Jungle Cruise history and news, and today we have a doozy. The Jungle Drums have been beating, and we're starting to get corroboration that the Jungle Cruise will be closing after its time as the Jingle Cruise. Uh, Word on the River is they're going to be redoing the dock area so that the boats will automatically dock, removing the need for the ropes that tie off the boats for safety reasons right now. Now, I always felt like that was just a temporary fix until they found a better one, and apparently the better one is coming soon. We always understand that uh, locking safety doors as well for the boats are on their way. Now, the refit is supposed to have the jungle closed from about January to about early May. And let's be honest, in any normal year, there's always a lot of attractions getting their yearly refits uh, in January uh, to April period. The real problem here is this is coming at a time when we have so much other capacity closed for the development of Star Wars land. So for all of you Disneyland people who want to get a jungle fix, keep tuning in here every week for podcast goodness and check in at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash jungle cruise, C-R-E-W-S, for more news as it comes in. The second uh, news item before we get into this week's guest is that we have finished up our Kickstarter for our new card game, Jungle Rummy, and it funded at 300% of our funding level, which is fantastic. We had a lot of fun with the campaign, and we did learn a lot of lessons uh, that we are going to use down the road. But we had nearly 200 backers and had 300 decks of the game that were pledged for, and we also made a lot of new friends uh, out here in the jungle. So thank you to everyone who supported us during this fun event, and we'll be shipping out those decks in early December. So today's guest is Skipper Joel Halberstadt. You know, when I uh, started chatting with people a little more seriously about the podcast and about the key figures in the history of the attraction, you know, Joel's name came up fairly regularly, but he hadn't been on the radar as far as being easy to contact for interviews and such. I was basically told, you know, good luck and that I probably wouldn't be able to get him for the show. But due to some detective work and Okay, really, basically, thanks to Facebook and a friend of mine who was a Facebook friend of his, uh, Joel turned out not only very willing to be interviewed, but he was also a fan of the show already. We're super stoked to have him for a two-part episode where we chat about his role in the late 60s and early 70s and his contribution to the legacy of the jungle. Okay, here we go, Season 5, Episode 9, as we sit down with Skipper Joel Halberstadt in an episode we like to call A Script for the Ages – Part one. Kungaloosh, everyone.
Welcome to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. I'm Skipper Kyle, as always, your host uh, into the rivers of adventure. And today we are chatting uh, with one of the early... Um, Let's just say people who had a great influence on the way that the the jungle is today, and who had a great experience in the jungle. Uh, that's Skipper Joel Halberstadt. Did I get that right? Correct. Oh, because perfect. Yeah. Well, you know, all the, all the letters and and things. I uh, you know, <laughs> California public schools. I have to have to make sure I get it spelled out right. Uh, so, Joel, welcome. I appreciate you taking the time. It's it's been um, it's funny. You actually have been on my my list of people for about two years. Um, I had a, a fairly short uh, list at the start of people who were recommended to me to, to chat with, and you were on there pretty much from day one. Um, and luckily, one of my friends had you as a Facebook contact, and, and here we are today. Right. So <laughs> uh, so first of all, let's let's kind of just get your timeline together. When, when did you start working for, uh, for the Disney company? Sure. I was hired in uh, in uh, February 1968. Uh, basically, um, walked into the personnel office. Um, they asked me where I wanted to work, uh, and I said Jungle Cruise. And the guy said, "Okay." And he threw a uh, ten or twelve page written spiel in my lap and said, "Take a few minutes and look this over." So I absorbed a couple of pages. As I remember, it was the elephant pool section, and I um, gave him an impromptu reading across his desk for about 10 or 15 seconds, and uh, I was a speech communications major at the time, and I guess I said the right thing in the right way. He said, mm-hmm. fine, you'll, you're hired. And I, uh, I started in, uh, in uh, spring of 68. I uh, was there to 1974 served as a ride operator, as they called it at the time, trainer and uh, foreman. And in uh, 74, uh, largely due to the fact that I think I was, I volunteered to write the uh, summer newsletter on the Jungle Cruise. At that time, it was called Jungle Drums. Yep. I, I actually, and, by uh, the way, I actually have a copy of one of the oh. 1974 five jungle drums that one of the skips uh-huh. that we interviewed uh, a guy by the name of kevin cavanaugh uh, actually had a hard uh, copy of that and we've scanned it and we put it up on the website it basically was a, a, a whimsical summary of what was going on in adventure and frontier land uh, parties like the banana ball what was going on there and uh, various jokes and and so forth Anyway, it came to the attention, uh, I guess, of Van France, uh-huh. uh, who ran the university, a well-known name, I'm sure, to your yep. listeners. And uh, they were had an opening as editor of the Disneyland line. Uh, 17 or 18 people were interested. Um, I was fortunate enough to interview with Van, got the job, uh, became uh, not only the editor, and at that time I think there was about four or 5,000 employees uh, that read this uh, every week. Uh, I think there's probably twenty twenty two thousand uh, Disneyland employees today. So oh, oh, much much more than that actually. Yeah, it's actually much more really? than that. It was um, when California Adventure opened. I want to say the number was twenty five thousand at that point when wow. when I started in like oh one. And I'm sure it's grown from there because there's uh, there's been some ah. expansion side of things. So well, anyway, I uh, I took those two years uh, at the Disneyland line as an opportunity to 
try to uh, highlight various uh, departments, uh, put as many people's faces on the front cover as I could. I, I felt a, a need uh, that wasn't being addressed to give the uh, people in one land an appreciation for other attractions, the part that everybody else played. Uh, it was not just about operations. It was about foods and maintenance and so forth. So from 74 to 76, you'll see a lot of front page articles uh, that I did on um, trying to instill more of an appreciation for what it was to be a Disneyland employee. Mm -hmm. I uh, was able to take on uh, some assistance during that time, uh, one of which was a very good writer named Ron Colon, who is still with the Disney organization. He's head of theatrical something or other in New York. Mm -hmm. I think he's been there almost 40 years. But anyway, uh, in 76, I was asked uh, to go up to Imagineering to uh, uh, work as a staff writer. Uh, I was there for four years, uh, worked on uh, a lot of uh, new Disney projects, uh, independence-like project, uh, a lot of the new attractions. Uh, I wrote the um, I was in charge of all the spiels at Disneyland, Walt Disney World, making sure that they were updated. And I left in 1980. Uh, I had a very, very positive experience in Imagineering in the uh, in the fact that I got to meet a lot of the people that I idolized that mm -hmm. had a major part in the Jungle Cruise, like Mark like Davis and uh, uh, Harb Ryman and, of course, Harper Goff. And mm -hmm. I I, uh, I learned an awful lot about what they intended for the attraction, how the different scenes came about, and it was really quite a quite a rush. Sure. Of course, all those people are gone now, but it was uh, it was a very very rare blessing that I enjoyed while I was up there for the four years. Okay. Well, that's a good overview. Let, let's roll it back. Um, first of all, on the on the hiring side of things. You know, it's it's amazing that at that time that they would have the the time to sit down with someone and you know and and spend ten minutes actually reading through a script to put you in the right place. Uh, obviously, very different from the the cattle calls that they have now to get people in. Um, and right. I'm sure that that personal attention, uh, you know, really helped to get people in the right place. Uh, what was the reason why the jungle was the 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 place that you wanted to go to? Because you were in college, probably twenty one ish, twenty you know early twenties. Mm -hmm. uh, what was what was the the draw of the jungle for you? Well, I had been to Disneyland as a guest a couple of times. Obviously, before that, um, I had actually visited uh, in December of uh, sixty with a girlfriend at the time. Rode the Jungle Cruise, and I saw the. Uh, the unusual um, qualities that a Jungle Cruise ride operator had to have. Uh, it wasn't just pushing a button on the Pirates of the Caribbean or uh, standing on the, at the turnstile at the Haunted Mansion. There was a, it was a really a 10-minute act um, that really uh, gave you the opportunity to uh, entertain a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, 25 times a day, if you will. Sure. And I was being a speech communications major and having some acting experience in my family. I, I thought, this is what I want to do. This is going to bring out my personality. It's never going to be boring. And um, I, I was also interviewed by a very, very genuine uh, guy who'd been at Disneyland staffing for many years named Ed Mackey. Mm -hmm. He's long since gone, but he seemed to be genuinely interested in casting 
uh, me in the right spot. And I believe it's safe to say that in those days, people would come and say, I don't really care. I just want to work maybe in operations. I want to work on the rides. I want to work in foods. I was very, very specific, and I think he sensed very committed and focused on what I wanted. Um, so in those days also, you should know that uh, I believe the stats were in 68, they hired one out of 10 mm-hmm. uh, people who applied. I, I think probably they'll hire anybody that is able to walk upright and speak clearly now, but in uh, those days it was very, very competitive. You know, it was that way when I came on in 01 where there was, you know, one applicant for every two or three jobs. Because there was so much demand when California Adventure was going and the economy was good, uh, but you know, since the the you know recession and really in the last five years, they uh, mm. uh, the number is flipped where you know they'll have uh, triple digit applicants for some you know when they do the hiring for who they actually bring in. It's it's a much more um, crowded field to get into the, mm-hmm. the park, and actually in a lot of areas they're not even hiring. Uh, it's very hard to ah. get into certain areas right now, and I, I think attractions can be one of those things at times. Um, mm-hmm. which I'm, mean, that's just the nature of how popular it is and how many positions there are for the, the people who are out there. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, back at the time, um, you know, so you get hired on, you know, they, they get you a costume and you show up, show up to jungle. What was the, the training process like early on? Because I heard that, um, you know, that there was more of a formalization of it, you know, in the sixties than, than at the very start of it. But had that really set in where there was a really formal training process? Actually, it was, uh, <laughs> Disneyland generally and the jungle cruise was kind of a mom and pop operation. And they were sort of in many areas flying by the seat of their pants. My training was to get a copy of the spiel a couple of weeks ahead of time. And they brought us out, uh, in the evening on two days that they were closed for training and I believe in those days they closed Mondays and Tuesdays, mm-hmm. especially before uh, spring set in during the winter season. So I remember going out there, I believe it was from uh, from three to eight, two days in a row, with about five or six other uh, rookies, and there were two or three trainers, and we went out on the jungle cruise, and they uh, explained what was required of us, and the rest of the time we basically took turns taking the boat around, understanding the handling of the boat, um, the danger points, what to do, what not to do, mm-hmm. but mostly practicing on the microphone. Um, and I, you know, I could see right away some, some of the folks that were training took to it very quickly. Some, some didn't, but it was really two, uh, five or six hour late afternoon, early evening training session. Mm-hmm. My first real day on the jungle was during the Easter of uh, 68 and I think I, my trainer took me around once or twice, and he said, okay, you're ready. It's all yours. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously I was understandably nervous uh, the first time around, but after about five or six trips, I felt like I'd been doing it for two or three years. Mm-hmm. It was just I took to it like a duck to water, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that, um, you know, I think we all know the story of how, you know, in the first uh, you know, the end of the fifties that the, the ride was, um, really more nature focused and a little drier uh, as it slid into the sixties, you know, it got more of a personality. What, what did you feel like that personality was like, how did you interpret what the, the role of a skipper was back then? Sure. And, and the role of the skipper was explained to me very clearly up front. I was lucky enough to have uh, one of my main trainers, a, um, 
an older gentleman by the name of Lee David, who uh, was an old, I believe, vaudeville uh, performer. He was probably 50, 55, but being only 20 or 21 at the time, I thought he was an older guy. Mm -hmm. And he was the one that Walt used to ask for, specifically when Walt would come to ride the Jungle Cruise. And he sat down with me and he explained that the intent of the creators of the Jungle Cruise was uh, to have the skipper uh, tell a story, to introduce scene by scene, um, not constantly talking, not not babbling on, not barraging the guests with, with chatter every single moment, but to introduce each scene, whether it was the crocodiles or the um, shrine or the hippo pool or the elephants, uh, put in the, the appropriate amount of uh, good-natured humor and then pause and give the guests a chance to absorb the environment around them, the vegetation, the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of the skippers forgot that, a lot of the ones I observed, and felt that it was mandatory that they talk constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, they, I think they lost sight of the fact that for many of the guests in those days, this is the first time that they had been on the Jungle Cruise, where the, the skipper just sort of was there every day taking 20, 25 trips, and they didn't even act like it was new to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee made sure that I understood that magic, besides having... Uh, tasteful humor and strong eye contact, very, very strong audience involvement. One of the main uh, things that you had to do to be successful was to pretend to be an actor and to be in the scene, really the very first that you've losing, seen them yourself. Yeah, we're losing the signal a little bit. It's it's uh, got a little spotty for a second. Okay. Anyway, not to repeat myself, but the, the, the challenge was to pretend uh, in front of the guests uh, during the spiel, that this was uh, the first time for you as well, and not to, not to, uh, in your tone of voice or your facial expressions, give the impression that oh, I yes, I, I see this every day, twenty five times a day. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it helped you keep fresh, keep your spiel fresh, but it also made it a, a really a credible experience for the guests. Well, and, and so that's what, that's what my training was all about, and that's what I tried to tried to f- follow. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was the era. I mean, that was really the, um, you know, the sixties where the, the Walt Disney nature films were really very strong and very popular at the time. And there wasn't, um, necessarily, uh, my understanding was that, you know, obviously there's no internet, there's, you know, only three networks. I mean, it, it doesn't have the, um, the point where you know students have this multimedia barrage of what's out there in the world, so there still was you know some freshness and some some awareness. Uh, same thing like when they went into the with the tiki room, how you know fresh Hawaiiana was at the time, and and how strong that experience mm-hmm. was, and how it hit the mainland. Uh, I mean, did you find that that people still had very open, wide eyed, um, you know, kind of amazement at, at going on the attraction? Uh, the, the, the skippers themselves or the guests? No, the guests, the guests. Oh, yes, yes. Um, a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the spiel in those days, uh, I was working from the one that I was given, obviously, and there were really no jokes in it at all. There were some double entendres, mm-hmm. and there were some, a little bit of corny stuff, but for the most part, it was written as very dry and narrative uh, to point out 
and talk about the audio animatronics figures, whether it be the rhinos or the dancing natives, and to try to instill a little bit of excitement in it. But it was more of a nature, almost a documentary spiel. Mm-hmm. And after a number of years passed, just to retain their sanity, the skippers started to interject jokes, um, including myself. Mm-hmm. And to make it palatable, I started to um, follow and mentally note the approach that two or three of the top skippers that I worked with, one of which was an elementary school teacher, and the other was a professional actor. And I started to incorporate, after riding other boats uh, on my break, the very, very best of the best. And years later, and I guess we'll get to this in a minute, but years later, one of my first uh, projects when I went up to Imagineering was to rewrite the entire mm-hmm. spiel. And I took that as an opportunity to actually do a, a written spiel where there were five or six different options or lines that the skippers could choose from. Mm-hmm. They, they could actually choose from two or three uh, at each scene to give them a choice of, quote-unquote, the approved jokes. Mm-hmm. And I incorporated an awful lot of the lines that I had learned in years past as, as a Jungle Cruise skipper mm-hmm. in that spiel. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, if you go on the Internet today and pull up a, a spiel, they're, they're, much to my amazement, uh, 85% of the jokes and the lines that I put in that spiel 40 years ago mm-hmm. are still there. Yeah. And I, I don't know if, what the new spiel, the current spiel looks like, but it was interesting to me that it brought me back to remember when I wrote that spiel that a lot of the lines are still there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that, you know, the perception that I had that I think a lot of people had uh, – as far as the the humor in the early days not really being there, when we spoke with both Sully and with um, Warren Asa, the other gentleman who was there in 1955, you know, they both told me that you know there w- it was not discouraged to have as you're going out there if your boat breaks down, you know, to to have a couple uh, you know lighthearted comments, and and it was not um, obviously the 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 rolling joke fest that it, it became over the years but you know you <laughs> warren actually said there were a couple actual funny lines that were put into the dialogue in the early script so and i don't think it was uh super dry but i definitely feel like that the early 70s was when it really started getting its personality um yeah i think you're right yeah what was now obviously it was still a boys club at that time what was the um the types of, of people who were there working, you know, obviously now there's a lot of college students. Uh, was it the same back then? What was the, what were, what were, who were the, the skippers at the time? The skippers in the late 60s, early 70s were really a combination of mostly college, college guys. Um, there were some school teachers who, of course, enjoyed their time off in the summer, and we saw these same four or five teachers every summer uh, when they weren't teaching. Uh, and there were other uh, other guys who were on career paths, very defined. Uh, they became attorneys. They became uh, lawyers. They became uh, some of them were vying uh, for careers with Disney, but for the most part, they were very personable, jovial, um, uh, easy to get along with group. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the boys club. Uh, you know, when you have a, an institution, and that clearly is what it is, like the Jungle Cruise, and it's been around for 45, 50 years, 
the stories and the jungle lore, as it were, that's passed down sometimes gets skewed a little bit. And sometimes, as as the over-enthusiastic folks pass one story on to the next generation, things become inaccurate. I noticed in at least two of your interviews, there is a subject of females on the jungle cruise. Mm -hmm. And I wanted just a brief opportunity to clarify something. Um, there was, I believe it stuck in my mind, someone had said that females were introduced to the Jungle Cruise for the first time in the mid-90s, and I think... Well, no, no, I mean, there, there we was, know, we, uh, no, we, we talked, that was the first time, that was when it was switched over kind of full-time. I know that there was uh, an earlier training attempt in the 70s um, with a number of young ladies to try it and see how it would run, and, you know, the... Uh, the history that I'd gotten out of it was that that, that attempt just wasn't one that stuck, uh, but that there was, well, you know, the first females on the jungle cruise, just to clarify, and maybe this has already been discussed was the spring of 1974. Uh -huh. There were three, three uh, girls. And, and I know, I know that because I trained them, um, understand that we were all used to working on other attractions like the Haunted Mansion and the Pirates, and there were women there, and it was no big deal. Um, in fact, it was a very nice environment. Um, when they introduced girls to the Jungle Cruise, it was a non-event, as I remember. Uh, there was no big uh, to-do about uh, supervision sitting down with us and saying, here's what we're going to do and here's why. It was a simple matter of me being called to the Disney University in the spring of 74 to pick up the first two or three uh, girls. And I, I met them, uh, Don Parrish, uh, George Ann Jor, and um, there was a Swedish girl by the name of Gisla. I don't remember her last name. Mm -hmm. And I got them in their outfits, brought them out. Uh, the guys were very, very accepting, mm -hmm. very, very courteous, very appreciative. Um, I trained them for the whole day on their spiels. Um, all, it didn't hurt that all three of them were very, uh, very pretty girls. They were there for the entire summer of 74, three or four months at least. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if, it, if the supervision or management was waiting to make a decision to see how they did or not. Uh, I know Dawn went on to become um, um, a, a singer in Kids of the Kingdom and mm -hmm. on to, uh, into acting. Uh, George Ann left... Uh, to go to became a disc jockey, I think. I don't know whatever happened to Gisla, mm -hmm. but it was uh, in those days. Obviously, female humor, right or wrong, was is less less accepted by the public. Uh, we didn't have the Amy Schumers in those days or the Paula Poundstones. So, mm -hmm. the, the the guests kind of expected the image of a big game hunter to take them into the jungle, uh, and I'm not so sure that the that putting females like like they enjoy today in those days was terribly successful. Mm -hmm. But I think these three ladies, as I remember, tried very hard. They were very, very uh, funny. And um, after they left, I, I think it was a period of time after that where they, they just went back to, to all guys. And of mm -hmm. course, what I can see from the websites today, it's, a, it's almost more females than there are males. And I think that's great. Yeah. It's, it's about, it's about an even split. I mean, it's, 
Um, uh-huh. You know, we we kind of covered the the 1995 changes with um, with Sue Barnaby and Laura Huff and the, the first round of ladies that went through at that time. But we've talked about the the 1974. Uh, I don't want to call it an experiment because it really wasn't. But the <laughs> the having the ladies on there, and you know, we I mean, I definitely appreciate your fleshing it out because that's a lot more uh, depth mm-hmm. than we've had before. But I think that's how. I think we've tried to represent it that you know just societally and culturally that it it wasn't right. that the, it wasn't that the skippers didn't want women there but look you you barely had Joan Rivers you know breaking out on the Carson show at exactly. that point exactly um, and 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 that's why the girls on Storybook were a perfect fit there because they were nurturing and calm and they were much better storytellers to small children than us Jungle Cruise guys mm-hmm. were. And so it was a perfect casting to put women only on storybooks. So, it, you know, it works both ways. Yeah. Well, and it was, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're looking at 40 years ago, it was a very different animal. I mean, you know, the culturally, very, very different. Culturally, you had, you know, societal changes and, you know, race issues in the, in the you know, 60s and, um, Right. You know, I mean, just, you know, and then Vietnam War and, and all those things that were swirling around that. I mean, there was culturally so much going on that was um, kind of like a bicycle going down a steep hill where it was just happening, uh, you know, uh, and not a lot of, uh, you know, kind of a uh, control over, you know, how that would impact a place like Disneyland that was seen to be, you know, uh, a pinnacle of service and show and all of those things. I mean, did you feel that? Did you, did you feel a cultural shift while you were working there? Um, I can tell you that, that life in general in those days was totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, people's goals people's commitment to what they were doing, uh, the morals of the day, the dress, what you did when you went out on a date. Um, uh, understand that because they hired one out of ten in those days, Disneyland was just filled with beautiful people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true today, but many, many people met their spouses at Disneyland. Sure. Uh, in fact, they had had a rule that said you couldn't be on the same attraction with, with your fiancé or mm-hmm. your wife for obvious reasons, um, but many, many people. Um, uh, it was a wonderful, <laughs> if I can use the expression, dating pool in mm-hmm. those days. Uh, but yeah, society itself, uh, they had the political arena, they had the Kent State tragedy, they had all kinds of political issues. Uh, There's a lot of stress that we don't have, but different stress in those days. Mm-hmm. But Disneyland certainly was a haven and was the best job that one could have uh, in those days. I, I couldn't, and people will think, well, this guy's crazy, but I could not wait uh, in a typical summer day to come in from the parking lot and get in, out on the Jungle Cruise. It was, uh, I, I just thought, that I can't believe I'm having so much fun mm-hmm. doing this, and they're paying me. Yep. I, I, it's just amazing. And that didn't change to the point where I, I came on in the mid-aughts where, you know, uh, you know, for the time that I was there, I, I left with a smile on my face at the end of the day that was bigger than when I went in in the morning. And to find <laughs> a job that had that level of positive impact anywhere is very challenging to find. Uh, you know, it's funny, you as you're describing the – the types of guys that were in the in the jungle uh it's it's strange to me because they sound almost um you know reputable <laughs> whereas the reputation <laughs> of jungle cruise skippers over the years has been one that's much more of the 
the bad boys of the park and and uh you know that's where all the I've had a number of ladies who we've talked to who've said that that's where uh, that's where all the girls would hang out afterwards. They'd go on the boat rides because the, the guys who were the most desirable were always in the jungle. Um, was, was that true from your, your vantage point? There were two distinct and very well-known um, groups of males in the park that seemed to have the corner on looks and personality and education and seemed to attract most women, the jungle crews and the monorail guys. Mm-hmm. And the monorail guys, for some reason, were all tall, and that seemed to be an attraction. But the jungle crews guys were the ones with personality, the ones that were funny, that had a sense of humor. And let's face it, to most women, having a sense of humor is in the top three uh, desires as mm-hmm. far as criteria yep. then and now. As far as the women are concerned, the very uh, the most elite group that everybody tried to, to date were, the, of course, the tour guides. Mm-hmm. And then the operations girls in Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. That, the, the prettiest girls were on the Matterhorn mm-hmm. and, um, and, and Fantasyland for some reason. So, yeah, there were, and, and you know, they, it, it, was, it was a perceived thing that the guys, they ran the, the banana ball. I, operated or produced a couple of them on my, uh, mm-hmm. with some other guys for two summers. But then a ball was the big thing. Custer's last stand was the big party um, the, with the bad boys in Frontierland. And um, it was it was an honor to get a invitation from a Jungle Cruise guy to go to the banana ball. Mm-hmm. But it was also an honor for to be invited as a date to the tour guide banquet. So the pendulum swung both ways. Yeah. But yeah, that... They were known for being the funnest guys and the ones with the most personality, I think. Uh, when we chatted with Kevin Cavanaugh, um, he was there 75 and 76. Yeah, he he went into a lot of the 1970s banana ball kind of a, mm-hmm. a things now. And, and that, you know, through the 80s and 90s was still a major factor. I think during the 90s it kind of died out uh, just from the viewpoint of um, – uh, you know, whatever, whether it's management, you know, cracking down on, you know, things that there's alcohol at, or I don't know what it was, but it mm-hmm. just seemed, it just seemed to slide out of, uh, you know, <laughs> wasn't cool anymore. Yeah. Well, and you know, and like I said, there were, there were some other things that took, that took its place, but as far as big parties and things like that, it just wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. Um, now in that time period, what else was happening, you know, at the park, uh, as far as new attractions? Uh, I know that, you know, obviously the bicentennial was a huge thing for the, uh, for the park, um, but there were there were some. I mean, obviously mid you know mid sixties, you had uh, the Tiki Room, um, and then you had New Orleans Square had just been completed, and then you, you get in the late sixties, early seventies. Was there much going on as far as things that were added back then? Well, Big Thunder, I started Big Thunder, as I right? said. In, well, yeah, Big Thunder was in the, the late, later late, part of the mid seventies, yeah. but uh, Pirates opened in sixty seven. I think the mansion opened in 69. Um, but during that time, you got to remember, they were putting most of their emphasis uh, on Walt Disney World and getting that open in, for 1971. It's not that they ignored the progress of Disneyland. They had the, uh, the, the mansion and the pirates, and they had some other new attractions. But 90% of the, the emphasis, especially on the part of senior management, that Dick Nunes and his staff was to get... Walt Disney World opened. That was a mammoth, mammoth undertaking. And um, 
I'm not saying Disneyland was forgotten by any means, but everything, uh, everything, all the emphasis of the company's resources went on uh, toward Epcot World Showcase and mm-hmm. and uh, the opening of Disney World in '71. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah, and we had talked to Sully about that when he um, when he sat mm-hmm. down with us, and you know it's. Um, you know, it really was necessary to give the East Coast, you know, something that uh, we had had on the West Coast and to have mm-hmm. that much more land, that much more resources. The company was doing well. So, yeah, it was it uh, it was a natural extension from from a very logical point of view. Mm-hmm. So when you were well, um, so when you were it was speaking of the bad boys side of things was um, did you feel that that. Um, you know, the, the way that the guests or the way that management kind of viewed the jungle was different than the rest of the, uh, rest of the areas in the park? Actually, I felt almost the opposite. The Jungle Cruise was considered uh, by the supervision, by management, as pretty much just another attraction. Mm-hmm. And the people that, the people, during the summer, you got to sign up for whatever attraction you wanted. But during the off-season and the rest of the year, um, they could put you one week on the jungle, One the next week you could be a pirate, then you'd go to Tomorrowland and work the Autopia. There was no, there didn't seem to be any recognizance whatsoever that the Jungle Cruise was totally unique from any other attraction. Mm-hmm. Certainly from a broad brush approach, the list of attributes that every, I'll just call them ride operators, anybody that's out on stage, they had to have a smile. They had to be courteous. They had to have a sincere interest in, in guest interaction. But there, on the Jungle Cruise, to be truly successful and to be really good, you had to have uh, skills of a storyteller, of an actor, in every sense of the word. Timing, voice inflection, eye contact, boundless energy to go through 25 trips a day and make each one fresh. Constant audience interaction involvement to be able to spontaneously think on your feet mm-hmm. to relate to people of all ages obviously especially kids and most important to have a healthy sense of humor and there's only other one other attraction in the park in my view other than the jungle cruise that you have to have all that unique talent and that is as a tour guide mm-hmm. and that's why the tour guide and jungle cruise people were had so much in common um management didn't uh, to the best of my memory, really recognized that. There was very little, if any, a positive reinforcement mm-hmm. of any kind. In fact, I can't remember, to be honest with you, even one incident in the six years I was on the Jungle Cruise where a supervisor came up to uh, a skipper and said, great spiel. And some of these skippers would come in boat after boat after boat with an applause, mm-hmm. which was unusual. The supervision in those days, with the possible exception of people like Bill Sully, uh, Sullivan, who was one of the best managers that I've ever worked for, mm-hmm. the managers there, the supervisors, seemed to, to perceive their role as, as a disciplinary role. They didn't have much to say unless something went wrong. And then it was, uh, you know, let's figure out what your punishment's going to be. <laughs> it's, I mean, do you, think that's not, cult- do you think that was cultural, though? I mean, that that was, you know, the stern father kind of a, a, a view of, you know, male management was, was very much that stern thing rather than the supportive and training side of thing that I think that we, we see managers at, you know, 20 or 30 years later. 
it was totally a result, in my opinion, of the managers and supervisors of the, in those days not getting the training mm-hmm. that they needed to be people per, person, to give positive reinforcement to, to the, people like Sully, who worked the jungle, understood what the jungle crews required of you, but very few other people uh, did. Um, they, uh, I mean, you literally would have someone who was promoted from the jungle crews into supervision. One day they had a, a, a sandals and a jungle hat on, and the next day they were wearing a tie and a white shirt. Normally they would put them in a different land uh, to start off with, but they they tagged along with a senior supervisor and learned as they went. Mm-hmm. To the best of my memory, there was very little, if any, uh, resources uh, given to new management that that train them to use common sense, to uh, give positive reinforcement, and to appreciate what the Jungle Cruise skippers or any other attraction had to go through. Mm-hmm. It was more of a almost a hallway monitor in an elementary school where they watched very carefully, and if something went wrong, they pounced on it. Very little pets on the back in those days. Very little. Now, coming in in 1968, did you feel still feel that, I mean, for lack of a better term, that the spirit of Walt was still present? I mean, being so relatively, uh, you know, recent after he had passed. I mean, did you still have a lot of people, obviously, who worked with him? Did, did you still, coming into that, feel uh, the influence of Walt in the park? Those of us who believed in, in Disneyland and who watched Disneyland develop, sit in front of TV sets like I did in 1955, 56, and watched Disneyland open, did have an appreciation and understanding for what, what Walt wanted. But to be honest, Walt, Walt was kind of a, uh, he wasn't a dictator. He, he, he was very, he micromanaged. He picked the very best people and, and then let them, let them go and do their, you know, what they did best. But it was the question for many, many years, especially up in Imagineering, but certainly after Walt passed away in 66 was what would have Walt, what what would he have done? Mm -hmm. Whether it was changing an attraction or, or designing something. And he did leave some very, very good people behind. Uh, Dick Nunes was, was a prime example of, of uh, a graduate of Walt Disney, if you will. Uh, Jim Cora was another uh, guy that uh, I think managed the way Walt would have been pleased to see. Um, the, in, in the Disney University, which I got involved with for a few years in the training, we used to train new employees. There was a heavy emphasis on Walt's philosophy and what he intended. But on a day-to-day basis, our whole world was Adventureland, Frontierland, and um, there was not a whole lot of discussion about Walt. We understood his philosophy. We were appreciative of being a part of his creation, but it uh, it wasn't a daily thought in our hands. Mm-hmm. 